The following program was recorded on June 10th, 2009. ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Larry Kaskill and Michael Greenberg. Hi, welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill. Hey, and I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and we're here today with you uh, happily. The program is a little different from others on ReachMD. There's two of us here, and we are live. And on the show that we're here to give you, the medical professionals out there, we're giving you a chance to be heard, a chance to share your thoughts on topics that are going on in the world of medicine. Today, we're going to look at the subject of conscientious objection in healthcare, what happens when your moral and religious convictions preclude you, be you a nurse, a physician, a PA, from offering or participating in certain strategies for care. Yeah, we have a great guest today. She's Dr. Julie Cantor, and she's written at length on this subject. She'll share her perspective on the issue, and we'll take your calls as time allows. The number here is 888-MD-1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. Pull over. Don't dial while you're driving. And Michael, we're going to hopefully get a chance to talk about health insurance. There's some new numbers out that actually show how the health plans actually, how much money they're taking from our practices. It's uh, kind of interesting and obviously needs some reform. And uh, we'll stop by the REACH MD forum to reflect on right. that. That's 888-MD-1-REACH. All right. We do try to bring a little levity to our serious show. Larry and I are very serious guys. So we'll start off with ReachMD's That's News to Me, reviewing curious news headlines or semi-news headlines from the world of medicine. Well, Michael, it seems like we talk about this topic every week or so that comes up. Uh, text messaging is once again in the news. And uh, the question that some experts are apparently looking at is, how much is too much when it comes to texting? Well, it's too much that you keep texting me during the whole show, exactly. Larry, so stop it. I've I'm got, not texting you back. I've got to stop. Uh, you know, we talked about getting uh, Palmer hydradenitis in the past. Yep. And uh, so now there's a reporter in the Orange County Register. He wrote a story about his teenage daughter who texted, uh, get this, more than 24,000 times in one month. I don't think I breathe more than 24,000 times in one month. Right. It came out to 800 messages a day, assuming that she slept. Uh, it came out to about 50 messages an hour. Okay, listen, I don't care what you text me, Larry. I am not going there with you later after the show. Okay. Few conclusive health studies show, uh, obviously, though, that... that there's a problem there, but come on. If you're texting all day long, you're not going to sleep. You're not going to do your work in school. And I go into patients' office, uh, exam rooms all the time, and they're texting, and they ask me to hold on and stop while they're right. texting something. And what's the basic message of any text? Hi, how are you? Right, what you doing? I am at the doctor. It's 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 insane. And I and I tell my patients basically, if, unless you're texting the president with a solution for healthcare, please turn your phone off. Well, are kids allowed to even bring their cell phones into the class anymore? I we don't. should have perhaps uh, text-free zones in our offices. Yeah, teachers can't stop them. They can't catch them. They're doing it under the under the desk. Listen. It, it, it's a real problem. All right, we're going to get to the. Well, subs there'll be a whole new there'll be a whole new specialty for us. I well, mean, for all the chronic, uh, repetitive stress injuries. But, but there's a good side to texting, and we can handle that on another show. All right, let's do that. All right. Okay, on the ReachMD forum today, Larry, an article caught my eye a few weeks ago, posted on Medscape by Nancy Terry, an, a medical writer from New York, and I love the title of this article, man. It says her article is called "The Ponzi Scheme That Is Health Insurance." Right. It is, it is a Ponzi scheme, and uh, I think uh, 
you know, we all look at Bernie Madoff as if he was, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like that. But yet we've been paying into this Ponzi scheme our whole adult life. Have you ever seen the bonuses alone that the CEOs of these companies make while our patients are scrambling to try and get a medication paid for? Right. So what exactly, why did we allow the insurance companies into our practices? Why did, what, what happened that doctors said, okay, we're going to let this third party in? I think we got scared. Years ago, when I started practice, 30 years ago, um, people ha- filed their own insurance claims. We gave them a super bill. They paid their fee. They walked out, and they took care of their insurance. And it, but we got scared. We were told by the insurance companies, if you don't take people's insurance, they're not going to come see you. And we bought into it. So and so now, uh, so so we're to blame. I mean, we can't always blame them. We let them in. Exactly. We let them into the party. They took over. Who wouldn't? Our fear of not making enough money mm-hmm. had us buy into insurance. So our fear and our greed. And our greed, absolutely. So so what do we do now? We to, end it. To, to, ex- to extricate them from the relationship. Well, maybe we need to go back to when insurance was really insurance. You know, when, when we so were it's catastrophic insurance. Right. When I was a kid, health insurance didn't pay for your doctor visit. It didn't right. it only paid when you had the appendectomy. Right. Car insurances do not pay for your car to be detailed for oil changes. They pay when something has really happened Ex- bad. Exactly. So um, President Obama, if you're listening, that's what we need to get back to. If you're working on a new health care system, when, you, when you're reforming the insurance industry, reform it so that people are paying for their basic health care and can afford it, and catastrophes are covered. That's the way it'll work. Think it's possible, Larry? Um, well, there are physicians that are, that are doing that now, that are opting out and are doing a cash model. They're charging whatever, $49 for a visit, and they don't have insurance companies to deal with. And so their overhead is dramatically, dramatically right. slashed. And one of my friends, who's a, who's a specialty surgeon, said when he went out on network, he gets just as many patients, and his patients actually do better. Right, so we just have to take a leap of faith, and, and they will come. I think we can do it. Michael, on um, Saturday, June 6th, friends and family laid to rest Dr. George Tiller, the prominent abortion physician who was killed in Wichita, Kansas, on the last day of May. Right, and authorities have charged a man with murder in Dr. Tiller's death, but the debate rages on about the physician's role in abortion cases and other areas of medicine where moral and religious convictions may overlap with our duty to the health and well-being of our patients. Our guest today has written at length about the topic of conscientious objection objection in medicine. She's Dr. Julie Cantor, MD, JD. Dr. Cantor is an adjunct professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Cantor, are you there? I am. Hi, Dr. Hi. Can we call you Julie? Yeah, please sure, call me Julie. Julie, uh, welcome. Listen, you wrote a, an article that we've obviously read in the New England Journal of Medicine about conscientious objection in medicine. Can you start by defining this for our listeners? What are we talking about here? Sure. I think what we're talking about generally, and we're, we're using this term loosely, it's it, Basically, the idea is when a healthcare provider decides that a particular procedure or some kind of healthcare information is against his or her moral beliefs, he or she then chooses not to provide either that information or to participate in some way in that procedure. We saw this a few years back with pharmacists when pharmacists were saying, well, I'm not going to provide um, Plan B. I'm not going to fill these prescriptions for Plan B. People were calling that a conscientious objection. Julie, do we have any training in medical school that that says, you know, if you're going to be a doctor or a pharmacist or a healthcare professional, perhaps you should check your um, your beliefs at the door and be non-judgmental to do what's best for the patient? You know, that's really the conflict. Do you 
leave your beliefs at the door as you say, you know, check them kind of as you check your coat, or can you bring them into the patient exam room with you? And some people would say that um, part of being a professional is keeping your values and your moral obligations with you, and other people would say that when you enter the profession, you have a choice to go into medicine and you have a choice to become any kind of physician within the medical field, and you're really taking on obligations to provide the medical care that is demanded by the evidence and the information that that patients need. When I was in medical school, I do remember that we learned quite a bit about being, you know, non-judgmental and being able to treat everybody as an individual and focusing on their needs. But that's a particular ethic that focuses on patient autonomy. And people disagree. It's a value judgment on some level. Um, And what I was suggesting in the the article in the New England Journal was that there needs to be a floor. Patients need to be able to rely on the standard of care to set a floor that when you go to a doctor in any state that you'll be able to get the same kind of information and the same kind of service, the standard of care. Let me stop you and rope you into a a slightly different subject on here. There's some legislation up that uh, was passed under the Bush administration that President Obama is trying to end. Can we talk about that legislation for a second and specifically why it needs to be, why, why you think it needs to be rolled back? Sure. The part of the Bush rule, if you look at it sort of from the what I call the benign point of view, it's called from that perspective, people say, look, it's just a provider conscience regulation. We're just trying to raise awareness of existing regulations. We're not actually passing any new laws. We're not doing anything that's particularly controversial. We just want to ensure compliance with existing regulations. And the goal is for patients to get health care. And we also want providers to know what their rights are. Now, on the other side of that, what this Bush rule does is it exploits ambiguities in the existing legislation. So, for example, there are some phrases there that the Department of Health and Human Services, that's where the regulation comes from, has taken it upon itself to define. Usually, when there are ambiguities in statutes, you have people um, litigate them, and they go to court, and then the court ultimately decides what these statutes mean. Here, the Bush administration and its Health and Human Services Department sort of shoehorned a lot of people into an existing rule. And what does Um, it allow people to do, basically? If you bottom line this, what what does this legislation allow? It it would allow basically people who say that they have um, any reasonable connection to a procedure or health service, which includes counseling or making any kind of arrangements for a particular activity, that they would have the ability to opt out. And the rule actually gives an example that I thought was a bit startling, that the employee whose task it is to clean instruments that are used in a particular procedure could say, you know, I'm not going to clean those instruments. And on the one hand, you say, well, okay, people should be able to participate in their job in a way that makes them comfortable. On the other hand, hospitals are difficult to run, and, you know, everybody sort of needs to dig in and do their job and not, you know, kind of parse everything that, that all of us are, are doing if, if you're choosing to work in that so, environment. So is the current administration looking to get rid of this regulation? That's exactly right. The current administration proposed its own rule, and the thrust of the, of the new Obama administration's rule is basically to rescind the Bush rule. To but it, take but it's, things back it's still okay not to force anybody to do uh, a sterilization abortion, but this rule was just too broad, you're saying, the way they wrote it. That's, that's right. The, the underlying rule that, that 
prohibits um, discrimination based on people deciding that they don't want to participate in sterilization or abortion, that's still there. What there would not be then is this um, idea that any activity with a reasonable connection to a procedure, this sort of broad, expansive language, that would come out because that just came from the Bush administration's Department of Health and Human right. Services. And you, and you said in your article that this, you feel that this article could bring healthcare to a grinding halt. Well, taken to its logical extreme. I mean, people say that, look, the hospital has a responsibility to provide the health care, and the burden then would fall on the hospital to find somebody, for example, whose task it is to clean the instruments. So, you know, that's a bit of a rhetorical flourish on my end to say taken to its logical extreme. But the point is, how much objection do we want to tolerate in, in medicine? And how, who's sort of from a normative point of view, what's the value? What do we want health care to be? And in, in my view, if I think about myself as a patient in need, I want to have patient care. I want to have information provided for me. And as a professional, I want to go into a profession with eyes open knowing that that's what's required of me, that I have that responsibility. Good. We have one minute left for you to give us a summary of what, where you want this to go and what your beliefs are for our listeners. Sure. I think where, where I would like it to go is to have it come back to where things were before the rule um, was enacted. And so I would be a supporter, or I am a supporter, of the Obama administration's um, rule, which would roll it back to that state of play. And I don't really have a problem with the Bush administration's idea of um, expanding education and having people learn about what their existing rights are. I think more information is power, but I also think that patients, too, deserve that information. And where the Bush rule would allow physicians and other health care providers to withhold information from patients, I just think that's not the direction that we want to go in health care. Okay. Well, listen, thank you very much for joining us. I think you've made a cogent case, and people can certainly read the article in the New England Journal of Medicine about conscientious objection. Um, we're certainly glad to have you on the show and, and appreciate your viewpoint. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. Thank you. Again, that was Dr. Julie Cantor. She's an adjunct professor of law at the University of California. So, Michael, do you uh, do some objections in your practice? Are there certain things you will not treat because of personal or religious beliefs? No, personally, I don't. But I understand the problem here, Larry. You can't force somebody to do something against their will. But on the other hand, you don't want to create a law that's so open that somebody can say, well, in my personal religion, I don't, I don't believe in overweight, so I'm not treating anybody who's overweight. If the law is too open, it gives people too much uh, too much. Uh, opportunity to throw their own beliefs in and impose them on other people. And that's not our job as doctors. Unfortunately, we are out of time today. And that's all she wrote and all she said today on Second Opinion Live. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. For more about ReachMD Radio on XM160, visit our website at ReachMD.com. And we thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>